Hello, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. It's Jamie here. And no, I won't pick up that soap. Because today's subject is Notorious Prisons from Devil's Island to Chateau d'If. Prisons exist for many reasons. To punish, to reform, to protect the public, or to persecute and oppress. They say the path to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, the path to prison can often be paved with tyranny. And so today I want to start with that Chateau d'If, because it's a great example, made famous, of course, by Alexander Dumas' The Count of Monte Cristo, written in 1844. Because that fortress stands as a classic example of the worst of prisons and of political skullduggery and involvement. Because if you don't have freedom of speech, free press, proper political systems, oppositional politics, a decent judicial system free of political interference, then you're in trouble. Then you get something like the Chateau d'If and the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. Originally built in 1524 by King Francis I, it was supposed to be a defensive position, an actual fort. Uh, the Chateau d'If is built on the Ile d'If, the island of the elm tree, which sounds bucolic and wonderful, but it's pretty grim. And it was quickly turned into a prison, a dumping ground for political and other prisoners. For example, there were three and a half thousand Huguenots dumped there in the 16th century uh, while they were being persecuted. It ended up, even as late as 1871, being used to execute those who took part in the uh, revolution in the Commune of 1871. There was a guy called Gaston Cremier who was killed by firing squad. And there was the Count of Monte Cristo, 1844. He was set up, that story of jealousy and ambition and revenge. And he ended up being put in a dungeon there, Dungeon 34, and making friends with the Abbe Farrier in cell 27, who told him about this incredible treasure. And he managed to escape and turn himself into the Count who comes back to get revenge on those who had persecuted him and set him up. But moving on from the Chateau d'If, you can look at other prisoners around the world and throughout history who were similarly set up. Uh, take, for example, Sir Walter Raleigh, who was in the Bloody Tower, not for 14 years at the Chateau d'If, like the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dante, but he was actually there for 13 years in the Bloody Tower. And sometimes if you walk along that wall, from the bloody tower, you can imagine him taking his exercise over the 13 years he was there from 1603, when he was stitched up by Robert Sissel, the spy chief in the by-plot, and incarcerated to keep him away from court, to keep him away from political influence. And how he must have stood on those walls looking towards London Bridge and seen the 
heads being put on spikes there and wondering when his would end up there. In fact, when he was actually executed in 1618 after a disastrous expedition to find El Dorado, find some gold for King James, his wife ended up walking around with his head, carrying it about in a red silken bag. You can imagine the dinner party she attended. She must have come up with some great gags, such as, I love to get a head, or you know, heads or tails, as she whipped this thing out of the bag. But although it's not an island, it gives a, a sort of idea of how political skullduggery can intervene so often uh, in people being incarcerated, people being imprisoned uh, over the centuries. There are other island prisons, of course, that have seized the public imagination over the years. There's Alcatraz, for example, an extraordinary fort, uh, extraordinary position, um, given over to the American military in the 1850s, turned into a prison during the American Civil War, then housing conscientious objectors during the First World War. The sort of concrete structures you see today were created really between 1909 and 1912. And over the period that it served as a prison, right up until 1963, it, it had many famous prisons. There were about 36 escape attempts. None are believed to have succeeded. Uh, if any actually succeeded, it might have been the three men who got away having made an improvised float in 1962 but no one knows whether uh, those escapees actually ever made it. Um, most people were caught or confirmed drowned. So that was uh, Alcatraz, which had an extraordinary uh, history. And of course, th that famous prisoner, the most famous of all, was Al Capone when he was moved from Atlanta State Penitentiary in the 1930s because he was believed to have got special treatment at Atlanta. So he was sent to the high-profile max security prison of Alcatraz. And that's where he died in 1947. Another extraordinary prison island, uh, and one run by the British, was St. Helena. It's best known for a high-profile prisoner. That was Napoleon, who was sent there after surrendering in 1815. He had escaped from Elba. The, the Battle of Waterloo followed, and the Brits were going to take no chances. So he was sent to St. Helena, where he lived in quite a lot of comfort, at Bra's Pavilion. He died in 1821. It's always been mooted that he died from a subtle blend, a cocktail of mercury emetic, prussic acid and arsenic. Uh, who knows? But he died in 1821, and that was the end of Old Boney. But the island itself was also a prison camp during the Boer War because over 6,000 Boer prisoners were sent there. And they had a relatively easy time compared to the women and children who were put in concentration camps back in South Africa. So Boer prisoners, those who had been captured whilst fighting with commandos, were sent not just to St. Helena in the South Atlantic, but also uh, over to Ceylon and to India. 
And there are actually no reported incidents of torture or barbarous treatment at all. So there's one for the Brits, I guess. There were other prison islands that have made their mark uh, over the years. There's Robin Island, of course, uh, 4.3 miles off the coast of Cape Town. And that became famous from the 1960s onwards because of the likes of Nelson Mandela being incarcerated there. He was put in a cell measuring only eight foot by seven foot, worked in a lime quarry that uh, affected his eyesight for the rest of his life. And there were in total three South African presidents that were inmates there. There were two prisons on that island. One was maximum security. The, the, the political prisoners were kept there. And one was a medium security prison that sometimes provided gardeners for uh, gardens along the coast of the Cape where they were brought over in boats to work. But the political prisoners stayed there a long time. Mandela was there for 18 years, from 1964 to 1982. Uh, and then he was transferred before his eventual release. So it built up a reputation and was eventually closed in the 1990s. Everyone loves an island, and the French were not to be left out because they had their own prison island, Devil's Island of French Guiana in the Salvation Islands. It was called the Penal Colony of Cayenne. And that was absolutely notorious. It was opened in the 1850s, lasted 100 years until the 1950s. And it's estimated that 80,000 prisoners went through that island. And they had a pretty appalling time, made famous, of course, by Papillon. At one stage, it's estimated that up to 75% on Devil's Island actually died. So you can see why it got the reputation as the dry guillotine that so many prisoners died. It was essentially a death sentence if you were sent there because you could die from malnutrition or beatings. The brutality of the guards was notorious. And also there was malaria and other diseases, tropical diseases. So that's what built its reputation. It also became famous for the Dreyfus Affair of 1894, when Captain Alfred Dreyfus was set up, essentially, in France and was condemned for treason and sent to Devil's Island. He appealed. There was another case in 1899. He was found guilty again, but he, he was eventually pardoned and released. But it showed the level of, sort of anti-Semitism and, again, the sort of political skullduggery that can be involved in sentencing an individual. The Brits developed their own prison islands, the Prison Hulk, those former Royal Navy ships that were decommissioned and then turned into prisons floating mostly on the Medway. Charles Dickens placed his hulks in Great Expectations on the Thames rather than the Medway. And that famous scene of Magwitch, the convict, swimming ashore and surprising Pip, the hero in the novel, uh, in a graveyard. But, you know, no one ever asks the question, how did he manage to swim ashore when he had a leg iron around his ankle? 
But let's not allow real life to get in the way of good Victorian melodrama. But those hulks were infamous and made their way into British consciousness. And there were three very famous ones. They, they all started from the late 18th century and stayed in service really until the mid 19th century. So it was quite a long run that these ships had. And there was one called the Justitia, one called the Censor, one called the Condemned East Indiaman. And those three vessels alone managed to contain about 510 inmates. But they had a, a reputation for squalor, for disease, for cruelty. And in one instant in the 1770s, uh, a convict came aboard the Justitia and had typhus. And very shortly after that, a third of all the convicts on those hulks had died from the disease. So it was an appalling time for those convicts. And these sort of waves of disease often happened in those confined, dreadful, squalid places. There was another very famous prison hulk, the Bellerophon, named later on the Captivity. And the Bellerophon has an extraordinary history because she was a third rater, a ship of the line in Nelson's Navy. She had taken part in the Battle of the Nile, had taken on the French flagship Lorient, 118 guns, whereas the poor old Bellerophon only had 74 guns. And she had suffered a lot of damage at that battle. She also took part in the 1805 Battle of Trafalgar was the fifth ship in the line in Collingwood's line as it penetrated the French and Spanish uh, divisions. And she ended up taking on four ships simultaneously, including the French ship Aigle. Her captain, Captain John Cook, was hit by musket balls and died after one minute. They wanted to take him down to the all-up deck, to the surgeon, but he said, no, let me die here in peace. And that's what he did. But she had the most spectacular career. She survived the Battle of Trafalgar, which is extraordinary. And she was then the ship on which Napoleon surrendered himself in 1815. He was obviously trying to escape the British blockade, obviously trying to get to America, and that didn't work. So he surrendered on board the Bellerophon. Bellerophon was later decommissioned and turned into a prison hulk. So it was a rather sad end for a magnificent warship that had such an extraordinary naval career. And she really should be have been preserved and uh, kept alive, a bit like HMS Victory today. But she was eventually scrapped uh, later on in the 1830s, I think. So, But an amazing career. One of the reasons the prison hulks uh, died out was essentially because the British ended up sending, transporting their convicts to a new colony, to the ultimate prison island, Australia. And Australia became the amazing nation it is today. So uh, it, some good can come out of prison islands, gave us Sir Les Patterson after all. So <laughs> that's the story of hulks and prison islands. Then we get on to prisons themselves. And there's such a choice. I mean, you can go from La Catedral, the amazing prison in the 1990s, 
of Escobar, the sort of privately built prison for the drug lord. And it was basically a plea bargain. He agreed to stay in a prison that his own people had designed and built and in order that he could avoid being extradited to the United States. So he was given a five-year sentence there uh, on a hill overlooking his own city of Medellin. And it was an extraordinary place. He had his own guards there. He had wild parties there. He had bars, jacuzzis, a waterfall, a football pitch, and, of course, an escape tunnel. Uh, what prison would be complete without an escape tunnel? And he used it in the end because his... Uh, his prison lair was uh, confronted by security forces because it turned out that Escobar was still running his drugs at Empire, Kel Surprise, uh, from that prison, his ships, his planes, his submarines. And uh, he was confronted and he escaped down the tunnel. He, he had actually tortured uh, and murdered four of his own lieutenants in that prison. So that's the freedom he had. Uh, so far more freedom even than Al Capone when he was in the prison at Atlanta. So Escobar escaped and was eventually uh, confronted um, 18 months later in Los Olivos, a uh, suburb of Medellin, and was killed by the security forces called the Search Block and there's a photograph uh, for the search block team standing over his bullet-riddled body, which is what happens to so many outlaws <laughs> in the end. So that was Escobar. And there's so many other prisons to choose from. Uh, another prison that's worth looking at, of course, is that Atlanta penitentiary to which Al Capone was sent. It was supposed to be a reform prison, but and prisoners were supposed to sit there uh, contemplating what they had done uh, in solitary confinement. But Al Capone was given quite a lot of special treatment, and that's why he ended up being transferred. Um, another salubrious prison is ADX Florence, in Colorado, the modern prison built in the 1990s to house those prisoners in America that couldn't even be held in a maximum security penitentiary. And it contains four terrorists there, including the Una bomber, the Pakistani Youssef, who took part in the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, the car bombing of the World Trade Center. And that's why that prison ha has a wing known as the Bomber's Wing. So that's a fairly notorious prison. And it has uh, those prisoners who have killed correctional officers and others. It's got some very unsavory, unpleasant characters there. But the prisons that are really worth looking at, because it's a sobering and salutary tale of what can go wrong if the political system behind it is wrong, are those such as Evan Jail in Iran. There it is at the bottom of the Alborz Mountains, built in 1972 by the Shah to house a few hundred prisoners. By 1977, it had expanded to contain 1,500 prisoners. What happens? The Islamic Revolution. And today, it houses... 15,000 prisoners. And the amount of torture, extrajudicial killings, the notoriety of the place is a total blemish on the record of the Iranian regime. 
And this is a regime whose nuclear ambitions we're supposed to respect. <laughs> it's just absolutely extraordinary. The sort of things that have happened in Evan Jail include prisoners being tied to back to back and blown apart with plastic explosive. In 2003, a Canadian Iranian journalist called Zara Zadami was arrested for taking photographs of the prison and she ended up incarcerated there and was tortured, brutalized, raped and eventually beaten to death as she was found to have blunt trauma wounds to her head that fractured her skull. So this is the kind of place we're talking about. There is no real justice and no proper judicial system that allows reviews of cases or prisoners' needs to be looked after. There's even a wing called Evin University because there's so many intellectuals that are incarcerated there. So that's one to watch. We need look no further than Syria to find another notorious prison because there you have Sednaya Jail, Sednaya Prison, the military prison near Damascus. Human rights groups have estimated that in the last decade, over 30,000 prisoners have been murdered there. In just four years from the start of the Syrian civil war in 2011, it's believed that 13,000 prisoners were killed. It has an appalling reputation. One of the things it's notorious for is giving prisoners allegedly a choice. They can either be executed or they have to kill by their own hand a friend or relation. These are the sorts of things that go on. The torture is rife. The brutalization of prisoners is, is rife. You can be executed just as you can at Evan Jail for any misdemeanor or for none at all. And that is a prison that stands out uh, amongst all the other prisons today around the world. There's another prison that needs a mention. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the Holocaust, but it's worth mentioning one prison that really symbolizes to me what can go wrong when the political system is wrong, when you don't have this independent judiciary, when you don't have oppositional politics, when you don't have freedom of speech and expression. And that is the appalling Croatian camp of Jasenovac in World War II. That camp, that prison, that extermination zone was responsible for killing between 80 and 100,000 people. But it's not the numbers that matter, it's the fact that it was done on a one-on-one -on -one basis by the guards. It was a torture center and it so symbolizes what can go wrong when the political system is wrong. This was the Ustasha regime of Croatia during World War II, led by Pavelic. And he was a notorious psychopath. He used to have human eyes delivered to him in a basket that sat on his desk uh, every week. And at that camp, the horrors are almost too great to speak of. You know, there were trainloads of women and children that arrived and they were marched to a nearby hillside and just thrown off a cliff to their deaths. The prison guards 
used to have competitions on how many prisoners they could kill with their bare hands. They wore a leather glove with a four-inch blade uh, protruding from it. It was an agricultural glove, and they called it the Serb Cutter. And there was one guard who took part in the throat-cutting uh, competitions, and he managed to kill 1,300 in one go. Another guard was known to have killed 600 in one throat-slitting session. The guards used to walk around with necklaces made of human tongues and eyes. There were people thrown alive into the brick and tile kilns in the local brickyard. There were children and women buried alive. There were people who were tied back to back who had their stomachs slit open and were thrown into the river to drown. There were so many tens of thousands killed with mallets and blades and pieces of iron. And it was all done at the hands of merciless Eustacia prison guards. And it's estimated, as I said, 80 to 100,000 were killed at this camp. And it's a, a name that is so little known in the world today, but it's one that is worth remembering because this is what happens when no one is accountable, when no one is answerable to human rights bodies or to a proper political system. Finally, we come to prison riots because this is when prisoners take over the asylum take over the prison and exact their own sorts of justice. And prison systems have no sort of defense against that sort of behavior. You know, you recently you get at the literal prison in Ecuador, uh, beheadings and crucifixions and hundreds of inmates killed by other inmates simply because the drug cartels moving in from Mexico uh, have these huge rivalries because Ecuador is a transit uh, camp, basically, for the cocaine trade. So you get those sorts of uh, situations arising. Back in 1980, you had the appalling Santa Fe prison riot in the United States in which 33 prisoners are known to have died. This is when prisoners found blowtorches uh, left by builders cut their way through into the protected prisoner zone, cell block four, whilst telling the prisoners what they were going to do to them. And those inmates that were caught, the informants, and of course the paedophiles in that section, uh, had very brutal deaths. Uh, they had faces taken off of blowtorches, blowtorches put to their ears so their eyes blew out. Uh, there was one who had a, a rope put round his neck and thrown out of the window so his head came off. Uh, you know, it was extraordinary what happened that day. And bodies were piled up in the gymnasium and set alight uh, to burn the evidence. And there were so many informants and other prisoners who were murdered. You know, 33 killed, 200 seriously wounded. So this is what happens when things go wrong. So that's prison islands, prisons, and prison riots, the hellish world of prisons. That's what happens when the prisons are badly run or out of control, or when the regimes that are in charge are out of control. And it takes me to the postscript. And the postscript is the Lubyanka. And that stands really as a symbol of oppression, 
down the years. You know, it became the headquarters of the Cheka, the Soviet secret police in the 1920s. And from that third story window, the office of the head of the Cheka and later the KGB, you know, people like Lavrenti Beria or Yuri Andropov, they looked out onto that square. In the 1950s, uh, the statue to Felix Zezinski, the founder of the Cheka, was put up, that 11-ton statue, a symbol of everything that was wrong with the Soviet system. And behind that KGB headquarters was the Lubyanka prison. It started as two stories, grew several more stories. And it was always known as the tallest building in Russia. That was the Russian joke, because from the dungeons, they always said you could see Siberia. It was essentially a transit route for those being sent to the Gulag. And cousins of mine went through that prison. So I'm no fan of it, that's for sure. And tens of thousands of people were tortured in those cells, were taken up in the cage freight lifts, the elevators, dragged along the corridors and executed in the courtyard there behind the KGB headquarters that formed one side of that prison. Even Solzhenitsyn writes of that prison in Gulag Archipelago. So it was a brutal, memorable, infamous place. And it's not surprising that it stands on the site where one of Russia's worst serial murderers lived back in the 18th century. She was Daria Soltikova and was notorious for torturing her serfs. You know, she perfected flogging people to death, maiming them, brutalizing them, branding them, and is believed to have killed about 75 to 80 people, although there's only evidence that she killed about 38. And eventually, Catherine the Great had her incarcerated and refused to allow her to be called a woman. She was actually called a man because Catherine the Great said that no woman would ever behave like that. And so that's where the Lubyanka stands today, on where her residence once was. And she ended up being incarcerated for 44 years. And Muscovites used to go and see this deranged woman spitting and screaming at them through a cell window. So that's the story of the Lubyanka. And it's a sad and oppressive and dreadful story. Ultimately, the Lubyanka and all those other prisons stand as a warning, a cautionary tale, and probably one we need to heed. Without political freedoms, without freedom of expression and the ability to oppose and complain, you end up with Evin Prison or Sednaya Prison or Jasanovec. All you can do if you are to be incarcerated in one of these dreadful places, one of these appalling institutions, is follow the advice of the Count of Monte Cristo. Wait and hope. Goodbye. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.